Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Leo Sherman, a director and producer who's worked on shows like Scare Tactics and Cocked Guns. You may also know him as Darren Shunt on The Amazing Gale Pile. His first feature as a writer-director, Trench Eleven, stars Ross of Sutherland, Sean Benson, Charlie Carrick, and Corinne Vanasse in a thriller about a squad of Allied soldiers who find something horrible in a secret German bunker during the final days of World War I. It's playing in theaters across Canada right now, and available on iTunes in North America today. Leo picked The Vanishing, George Sluzier's 1988 thriller about three people united by a terrible mystery, a young woman who disappears, the boyfriend who can't let her go, and the utterly ordinary man who holds the key to all their fates. It took a few years to break in North America, but once it did, it was an arthouse sensation, hanging on through clever advertising and passionate word of mouth for years in rap cinemas. Three decades later, it still packs a hell of a punch for those willing to seek it out, which has its own cruel irony to it. This is someone else's movie. I, I don't know how many of your listeners... I suspect your listeners will know the film very well because of the, it's a kind of curated audience, but yeah, it's surprising so. how many people don't. If you go to a bar... And I don't mean go tap a stranger, but if you go to a bar with a group of people and if they're not all in film, I'll give you an example. I literally just left a group of people um, with Ross of Sutherland. Um, oh, so you just to set the stage, you're on your press day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're doing some, he, and he was doing his press today. And we all went up and just, I literally just came from a pint and came over here. And there was a, guy there who's a podcast he runs a podcast and there was uh, a couple producers and there were some people from PR not one of them knew the movie really yeah not one of them had seen it and only sort of heard about it and that's my example and this is these are really smart people these are people who are in our business and yet it's still oddly enough I feel not fully known and um, uh, I mean I'm coming from a place where 30 years ago when it was making the rounds at the art house it was you know it played the blur it played the the paradise must have had it it, it played in toronto forever it, it did was always like on. it had a good long run yeah it ran forever at the carlton i think but then it always hung around it was one of those rep staples like wings right. of desire and uh and liquid sky one of those mid-80s films that never went away right because and especially for this film of course, you would always want to take someone to it. You would watch them watch the movie. That's right. And because, get to the ending. Yeah. yeah. If you know the ending, you're ahead. Yep. <laughs> you're ahead yep. of the game. And then was... the conversation after is very satisfying. Yeah. 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 And it was like re-experiencing your own trauma through somebody else, which of course is what the movie is about. That's right. And it just set itself up. It lent itself perfectly to that. Yeah. But yeah, I'm... I'm surprised that it's faded, but I'm kind of also not surprised because it is one of those movies that, for a lot of people, as soon as they found out what happened, it was done for them. Right. Which is weird, right? Right. Like, it's not a film... It is a film you can revisit, but it's not a film you want to. And so, between that and the, well, I know what happens, I don't need to put myself through that again. Maybe you're right. Sort of like a sixth sense type of phenomenon. Yeah. Where but everyone I, is talking about it and then nobody is. Yeah, and I think that underserves it. Mm-hmm. Because I, I oh, actually yeah. do think that... I mean, I've seen it countless times... It, the ending is really just the cherry on the cake. It is profoundly um, compelling all the way through. Yeah. And actually, 
uh, because it's also um, edited in a non-linear manner, it does lend itself to multiple viewings because you're, you're kind of seeing the pieces come together in different ways each time. And the, and the more familiar you are with the film, on later screenings, you I feel like I've... I mean, that's what makes a masterpiece for me is that if can you watch it endless amounts of times and does it offer continue to offer things and, and as you age, has it changed yeah. your, your point of view on it? And, um, and it has. I think that's totally... I think you're right. I think when I was younger and I first saw it, it was really all about that crazy ending. And really, to me now, like I said, it's the ending is obviously still a factor, but there's so much else going on in that movie. Oh yeah, no, it's not a gimmick picture at all. Not at all, exactly. But it was sort of marketed as yeah, well, yeah, and like at a, least in North America. And I think that turned people against it over the over time because when you see the video box and you, you're like, oh, the ending, oh, the ending, like, well, I think you're 100 percent right. And I actually also think that probably the fact that it is many people have said it is up there with the worst remakes ever oh yeah and we'll get there that's <laughs> we'll get there later I'm saving that because it will immediately derail this that, conversation that's right but I think because of that maybe it's you know but nonetheless yeah. I I still feel oddly as odd that as that might sound to you I still feel that it's somehow a little under the radar no I think you I think you're absolutely right um, well to frame that a little bit more when did you first see it I got to it late okay. um I didn't see it until I was in my twenties. Okay. Um, and uh, and it was it, it somehow it was when I really went full, you know, into into fo- film, and I, I went into kind of like matrix level consumption of everything, and right. and it was always on that list. And I have a personal, um, I really like European thrillers. That's like that's one of my favorite things uh, one of my favorite genres and so it was obviously always there I don't know how it had just sort of slipped the cracks it might have been availability issues if I look yeah. back it's possible that it wasn't um, I'm not sure but anyway it just for whatever reason I hadn't seen it until I was in my 20s and and uh, I was with I was living with my who is now my wife and she was my uh, girlfriend at the time and we were living together and it was uh, winter at like January and she was um, doing her graduate degree in architecture, and she they she, they went on some trip to to Rome, and uh, I watched it alone at home <laughs> on a, on a really cold night. That's no way. To right? Yeah, yeah, and it's like it's January, so you're already kind of predisposed to, <laughs> and it just rocked me. Like it totally rocked me, and I couldn't. And it was this was like long enough ago that. Uh, email wasn't it wasn't we weren't at a place now where you could just text or email her right yeah. right so i actually had a kind of window there where i i just i it had such a profound effect it really floored me and i and it was a strange experience because it everything about the movie i just liked everything about it it was one of those ones where i just i should have seen it 10 years earlier it just made it's for me that's the kind of thing that i like it was it ticked off every box right yeah i saw it with an audience at the bloor and which is as big now the Toronto hot dog cinema or yep. whatever they're calling yep. it this week but it's this big cavernous theater yeah and you could just hear people holding their breath was it, it was, a, was it a late night screening it was it was an evening screening it was Wait, when, it was when half you, full I would say and it was like a seven o'clock you, you came out into the night and people were just freaked out it was amazing when you went was it a big deal like, uh, no I think I caught up to it late it was it, I had definitely missed the press screens I wasn't um, but it was it had arrived it was a thing by the time i caught up to it and i had avoided reading anything about it i just heard that it was a horror film that wasn't a horror film 
that was the pitch going in that it was really, it was a horror film but it, it wasn't a horror film yeah. there's no blood yeah that yeah. it was a, yeah. that it was a disturbing film that wasn't specifically yeah. Yeah. a horror movie and uh, it delivered totally and but but the experience of watching that with a crowd was really something and I can only imagine um, I'm assuming about half of them had seen it oh it was like a repeat screen yeah it was definitely a rep screening <laughs> right uh, but it was a really interesting experience because thinking back I was remembering that people there was a couple of snickers here and there that felt weird and I just assumed I was missing something in the translation right and now it's like no you guys are reacting to him they knew what was coming to Bernard Pierre Donadieu and how just incredibly perfectly flat and terrifying his effect is totally because he's the guy who your, your, your classic what is now your classic movie sociopath which is the person who gives away nothing and looks completely ordinary and boring that's right um, but at the time and I think the film being in another language helps immensely for a North American audience because we're still trying to learn the rhythms of people and understand how yes. language works and who they are and here's this person you just you cannot fix on in the same way that the hero can't fix on him yep and you're drawn in by that, by that weird stillness of, that he projects that, that gets creepier and creepier as the movie goes on. I think it's true. Um, you know, I speak French. Um, I, I, would, I used to speak it fluently, but I, I, my ear for French is, is, is very good. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, though, he, even though it's in another language, there is a banality by design right. to his performance that I think really does land. Because I, I agree with you, like often... When you watch films in a foreign language, if you don't know the language, I feel like everything feels more real, more realistic. And sure, part of that yeah. is because you don't really, you're not picking up on the nuances of a performance the same way. Mm-hmm. But I guess I just say that because I, I, so I do really get French, and I, 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 so I was rewatching it in advance of this, and I, that's something that really stood out was that he, I there's just a kind of casualness to everything about what he does. They don't overplay any of it. Yeah. But I think that's really one of the probably the core themes of the I, I presume the book as well but that's definitely one of the core themes of the movie is the the banality of evil mm-hmm. and I think that's a recurrent um, from where I how I view it I think it's a recurrent um, European idea and I really think it's just because of World War Two and what they experienced yeah. um, there was a banality to how how horrible somebody could be um, they weren't all stark raving mad. And I think you're right, because I think that up to, in many ways up to that point, generally speaking, guys who were as crazy as him played more crazy. Yeah. Right? Well, you would get, like, you know, the Bruce Dern performance from the 70s to the 80s and the, the crazed Vietnam veteran. That was defining... Yeah, like, was it Black Sunday? Yeah. Yeah, the Frankenheimer movie? Of them. That's yeah, the biggest yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, like, that sort of defined... A type of yeah. madman, yeah, as we understand it, yeah, or the bad guys in Death Wish, or uh, sure, you know, yeah. Dirty Harry, or whatever, yeah, just people who exist as animals to to do to wreak havoc and do harm. And here you have a guy who's like he's just tossing off his lines, and he's really casual. He's he's making eye contact. He's doing all the things that regular people do, but the things coming out of his mouth are just so disturbing. And then the more time we spend with him, everything he does is so wrong on some level, some fundamental offness, that it really gets under your skin. I, the last time I saw it, I was worried that it would seem that I would now read, like, pay too much attention to him, that he'd be too big, but yeah. no. He's, he's not. Yeah. It's so understated. Not. By design. On his performance, but clearly the direction. It's very understated. 
Yeah. And it sets him against everyone else. Well, I mean, he really only has one other person to play off of. But that character is in such a manic, frenzied state that his calm looks more disturbing by con- by contrast. Totally. Yeah. And I think it's also um, the... Um, it's just the way the story works by having him as a family man. And the scenes, I think, are really quite brilliant with his family. Um, because, you know, I have two daughters and that character has two daughters and it's like really weird because you uh, I think they do a good job of getting you to a place where I'm not trying to say that I or somebody else can (laughs) start to identify with what he's doing but he I just think there's something very fascinating about his ability to still be a nice family man and to still you know, pick his daughter up at school and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and, and he's normal at home, right? Yeah. And, um, and he's not compartmentalizing it. He's no, just a he's different not. person. That's exactly it. He's not yeah. compartmentalizing it. He's not, he doesn't have a split personality and he's not, yeah, you know, like dressing up. You know, it's like, no, it's just this guy's pretty rational. And he's clearly, he's a professor and he's got a family and he's very bourgeois. And he's, yet, he obviously has, yeah, you know, empathy issues. And, yeah. um, and he's so he is by you know a sociopath by definition, but I just think it's it's still to me one of the one of the greatest portrayals of of what we call a psychopath. Yeah. I really do. It is it is remarkable too because when you unpack the film afterwards um, and realize you know the the cruelty of the ending is one thing for, as an audience member because it is just absolutely pure nihilism and and just you know oh sorry no did I not mention that this is going to go to a terrible place, but the performance becomes even more impressive in retrospect when mm-hmm. you realize that, and obviously it's the script and it's it's a contrivance, but it works so beautifully. He gives nothing away. He is telling the truth all along. He's just being a complete dick about it. And it's absolutely merciless. And I think that's a really good point because I, a lot of times you go out of your way to trick the audience, to manipulate. And that's okay. I'm not, sure, I'm not no. fully against that. I mean, Spielberg's built a really... Incredible career doing that. Yeah. Um, it absolutely has its place as a storytelling tool, and it it does, and more power to it. And Hitchcock, you know, was really into that. But that is what's very refreshing about this film, and something I very much identify with is that you, as a director, directing actors, mm-hmm. it's brutal when you when there is a contrivance because a lot of actors, you know, it just becomes artificial. So you can deliver it and you can do it, but there's always something that rings untrue to you. I mean, this is a question of taste right now, but. I, that's what I find so compelling is that no you're, you're totally right he's everything he's doing he's being truthful to the audience they're showing you everything they're not I mean the only contrivance that way is that it is non-linear the way that sure, the yeah. information is parceled out is very interesting because I believe the book is not structured that way and my understanding from what I know is that the original screenplay which is written by the, the journalist who wrote the novel mm. they go back him and the director Sluzier, is how you pronounce uh, it. Yeah, yeah. I think so. They go back. Well, I'm saying it in French, but he's Dutch. I, I'm not sure how you pronounce it's it. It's Tim. Um, Tim Crabbe. But they're but they're actually Dutch, both of them. It was a French Dutch co-pro, but they're Dutch. So right. he they go back. They did a they did a project together before this one. So he started writing the novel, and Sluzier got his hands on the manuscript before it was published and okay. bought the rights to the book. And so they started, and he said, I'm going to buy the rights and I want you to develop the screenplay. And he did, but my understanding is they actually ended up having a bit of a falling out because I don't, from what I know, the the story did not 
structure itself in in the nonlinear manner that the edit of the film is. Uh, interestingly, the director did edit it himself. Right. Um, I mean, it. Yeah, it would be very different if it went it, from A to B to C. It would. It, it, the when I last viewed it and I knew that I felt that that was part of the genius of the film. In fact, is that. It, it, that the way it's told again, it's not about trickery and deceit, and sometimes that's okay. It's like you know, Christopher Nolan is pretty sure, good at that yeah. too, right? No, Memento is the film that immediately springs to mind in terms of yeah. how to mirror the storytelling impact yeah. of, of this film. But I felt like this one, it's like I think that's one of the, the one of the things about it is that so Hitchcock had his theory on suspense, which is that the more you, you that the, the more you give the audience in terms of the characters, the more there's suspense because they know now that that's the killer. Right. Right. He's he you know you, you know the famous conversation he had with Truffaut where it was surprise versus suspense. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know who the killer is the whole movie, and then at the very end it's like da 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 it's this person. That can be very effective, but that's a different energy than knowing the whole time that in fact that's the killer. Oh, so yeah. it's like frenzy. You know the whole time. And that's the suspense is actually comes in the fact that the other characters don't know. So every time you see the killer and yeah, victim no, in the room. Absolutely. And right. I feel like that's what this really played on because you can really misplay your hand by by revealing certain things. But it, it, I, I feel like when I looked at it, that's what that's what really works. It's somehow about when they introduce him as the villain and how it's being slowly played out. It's really, I mean, it's really, really, really well edited. And I heard, um, I read, and I don't know if it, I'm assuming it's true, I read somewhere that Kubrick, upon seeing it, yeah, he called the director. Uh, in fact, Slusier tells the story on the, oh, does on he? the Blu-ray. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, they they have a, a, that's the section that they excerpted for the Criterion website, so you can actually find it without owning the disc. Oh, like on YouTube? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they posted it. It's part of the... It's part of the, the the film's webpage, and then also it's on YouTube. But he said that um, he saw Kubrick saw it, uh, saw the film somewhere, and contacted him and said, you know, like it's absolutely terrifying. And Sluge's response was, "Oh, The Shining is scary. Come on, you made The Shining." And and Kubrick basically said, "No, The Shining is not scary. That your movie is scary." And it's so simple and so weirdly charming, an observation that I think that is great because. It also acknowledges that Cooper knows he didn't really make a horror movie with The Shining, which is one of those fascinating artifacts where I think it's really interesting as a film, but it's not scary. Yeah, it's not really. You have some moments of gore or visual Shocks. shock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's like jump scares. Yeah, but it's a film about why things frighten people, yes. which is how he approached it. And yes. that I find that really interesting. But, yeah, no, The Vanishing is a film that literally locks you in with desperation and terror and and the lack of knowledge and things being withheld and of course that would terrify Kubrick I mean it scares anybody but the idea of Stanley Kubrick watching a movie in which someone consents to a total loss of control exactly I could imagine him just clawing his arms well there you go and because that is it it's not just we've been talking so much about the villain but Mm. that's also why it's so psychologically disturbing is that there's a bit of a um the, uh, you know, be careful what you what's the what's the old saying? Be careful what you wish. Wish for, but the uh, um, the curiosity killed the cat. Mm-hmm. It's that this obsession that this poor guy has. Um, he has. He doesn't have to drink the coffee at the yeah. end. He doesn't have to make the choices he does. And in fact, he's told that. Yeah. And repeatedly. It, repeatedly. And I think that that is also awful because 
I feel like the film does touch, which makes a ton of sense for Kubrick, because it does touch on artistic obsession and passion. And there's that speech that he gives when he's talking when they when his wife suspects him of having an affair. Right. And she says, Why do you keep going you know, why are you spending all this time at your country home? And of course he's spending all the time out there because he's got his victim locked up out there, but and planning for it. But he gives a speech and in that speech he talks about passion, about getting an idea in your head, and then you move one step forward. And it's this whole and it's he's really what he's talking about is any form of obsession or passion. And there is a danger in that, right? And it can go both ways. And so, you know, I th- that makes sense why Kubrick would have gone that way. I also heard that Kubrick did specifically say that he thought the editing, because 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 Susie himself did cut the film, which is quite rare. Mm-hmm. He, he he apparently commented that he thought it was just extraordinary. I can see that. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's the the precision of it would oh, totally appeal to him, but it's also a, a great representation formally of what the characters are experiencing because there's a plan and we don't understand it. Yeah. And I have seen films that use nonlinear editing well. I have seen films that just don't understand what it's for and do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, I just saw something that opens with a, a flash forward. What is it? Oh, it's uh, it's playing at TIFF. It's called The Sweet Requiem. It opens to... It opens with a key moment in a character's backstory... Mm-hmm. But then it proceeds to unfold that backstory parallel to her present-day story for the length of the film. So we know where it's going, and so does she as an adult, because she was there, but we still have to watch 40-odd minutes of these characters in flashbacks heading towards this point. And right. once you figure it out, uh, once I figured it out in the theater, it's just, why, why did you choose to tell it this way? Because this is dumb. Like, you're actually, unless I walk in late, your film is undercutting itself. Yeah. Because you're clearly telling me that this is a dramatic high point. I think sometimes people do end up having to re-edit because there's other problems happening. Sure, and sometimes yeah. they're, the feedback we start to get is that it's too boring, yeah. right? For too yeah. long. Well, and Soderbergh so, supposedly recut out of sight after a first test that was linear. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and a limey. I thought the limey was designed that way uh, when they shot it, but oh, was the it? screenwriter didn't. Lem Dobbs. Yeah, I, Dobbs I, doesn't like it. But Soderbergh had it in mind. Oh, okay. I thought for some reason I thought the maybe I was thinking about it say because I always thought that the Limey had been recut after Lem Dobbs was pissed uh-huh. off about it. But. He is definitely pissed off about it. <laughs> but it was written as a linear script. But Soderbergh jumbled it. Right. I think it was in on his mind while he was shooting, right. or and it was never cut linear. Right. But out of sight was, and they found it disappointing, so he scrambled it. Yeah, for that reason. Yeah. yeah because you get audience tests or whatever say it's slow, it's too slow. I don't care what's happening. Not enough. So then you flash forward earlier yeah. and you give everybody well and that's sort of what I'm to come back to that I mean that's sort of what I'm saying is that I, I I it's a very difficult alchemy to get right and most people don't get it right yeah. and it's usually a bit of a cop out and in this case I think it's just you, it's just done absolutely brilliantly and I'm not sure the film would have the same impact if, if it wasn't structured the way it is no I think you're right I think I mean, there is a version of this that goes from A to B to C, and yep. it is the remake, and it's terrible. Well, there you go. That's um, I didn't want to go there, but no, that's no, exactly no. right. Let's so that's, do it. Yeah. And that and that's what's fascinating about the remake, which Luzi did himself, mm-hmm. which He's, he didn't write the screenplay for. Yeah, that, right? but he famously said, "If it's going to go wrong, I'm going to be the one to I do it." Be the one. And look what happened. Yeah, you know, there's a part of me too, and I do not criticize him for it. There's a part of me also, just as I get older and you kind of live life. He was in his mid to late 50s when he made the original. Mm-hmm. 
he's not like he was lighting the the world on fire financially, presumably, sure, right? Yeah. He made all the documentaries in Holland. He was an artist in Holland in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. There's a part of me that wonders what that paycheck looked like. That 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 remake paycheck was yeah. probably at his stage. I'm sure it cost more than the film did. Well, exactly, and the paycheck the probably film. was guaranteed to get him out of whatever debt he may have been in, mm. and would have set him up. He probably looked at that and went, "What's the worst case scenario here?" And I and I do wonder that. And I, I know that's being a bit cynical, and, and yeah, but I'm being honest about that. I think that's reasonable. I mean, certainly, you know, if you are this guy and you are given the opportunity to come to Los Angeles or. Yep, Seattle or wherever they shot it. Yeah, and work with Jeff Bridges, who even then was he was a good actor, an incandescent presence. So, like totally. this is a year after the Fisher King. Totally, you don't. I, why would you not? Totally, and, and I think also also the appeal of the experiment because he's clearly interested in what if scenarios and that kind of thing. Yeah, why not take a shot at it? But and but it he, doesn't. And he got to co-discover Sandra Bullock, which is something that that's right he gets no credit for. But it, but. It is a soulless film, yeah, oh, and that's what's so strange about it's it. And fascinating. It might be one of the reasons as well, maybe that over time, the film has become so important to me because it there's some, and I don't know what it is, but there's mm-hmm. some, there's a lesson somewhere in there, and I, maybe the lesson is just twenty twenty hindsight, right? But there's there's some, there's a fear in there because I think making films is really hard. Making really good films is extraordinarily hard. And all great filmmakers have made, for the most part, maybe Kubrick is the only... Everyone else has made a bad film, right? right. Maybe Orson Welles didn't. Yeah, Eyes Wide Shut. I still don't like it. Right. Well, let's say it's not bad, but you might not... You know, it's not great. But but most filmmakers have actually made films that are actually really sure. not good. Like, yeah. they don't work. Um, and that happens, and that's life, right? So yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, it's chemistry, right? It's alchemy. Exactly. It's one this, piece is off. This is the thing. And so... And you don't... Obviously, you don't know that before. Because if you did nobody would ever make a bad movie sure so there's something so strange about him kind of redoing his own movie and now he's got all the time and money in the world and admittedly I feel like he's a clearly such a European person that doesn't you can tell when you're watching the remake that that's American in the movies it's not real American yeah the feel is wrong it just doesn't it feels artificial the whole thing feels artificial whereas the whole really one of the greatest assets of the original is that it's it's so real mm-hmm. it's like real like the way a Michael Haneke movie is real like it's it just it's like that's Holland that's yeah, France there's nothing fussed about it there's no, no fancy lighting no. there's no you know weird shafts through the trees or anything no, like that no it's, it's not just people houses cars exactly it's not stylized it's again coming back to that word banal it's very and that's a very European style mm-hmm. I think of like Benny's video yeah um, <laughs> right like yeah. there's a certain Europeans do that very well and so Clearly, the remake is just—it just feels very artificial. But there's more to it than that, and I don't know. I would love—I mean, well, there's what do you know more? Like, do you I, know what did, did the director ever say why he thought it didn't work? I just—I've only seen the most vague coverage of it. He—he, he, everybody kind of receded from it so quickly because, you know, like, not only was it a failure uh, artistically, but and financially, but the comparisons immediately just damned it. It was as though the thing was an abomination that had crawled out of a hole and had to be driven back in with totally. fire. Uh, so it was so so roundly rejected and profoundly condemned. Do you remember? You remember when oh, it came yeah. out, oh, having no. been a fan of the original. Well, by the time uh, it did come out, I was a member of the working press. I was at the first press screening in Toronto, which oh, was a small wow. uh, theater in the Cineplex building. The building's still there. The theater's still there. Like forty seats and twenty five people, and there was genuine excitement. We were hoping for something interesting. 
And as opposed to, you know, 300 people holding their breath, this was 25 people each giving up at a different point in time. Uh, <laughs> you could tell. Yeah. That person's out somebody, now. Yeah, somebody checked out yeah. the second Jeff Bridges spoke because it's those a, choices are... It's such a bad performance. Yeah, yeah. and it really is... It's as, And I get it, he's trying to be as far from... I think oh the original yeah like he's, yeah he didn't he's want to get an road. accent he's doing a thing with his jaw he's yeah. like he's doing stuff even the hair yeah, yeah 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 and it's all working against our concept because everybody in that room knows the movie that's right and oh that's not right and somebody gave up right away somebody else lasted a couple of scenes and we're all just kind of hoping that the rest of the film will find a tone that matches him or makes sense of him nope uh, and for the for the entirety of it except when Sandra Bullock shows up and I think. If I remember correctly, this is like six months after Love Potion number nine. Right. So she's already been in a couple of films, and we sort of register that this is... You could tell this was somebody. Yeah, yeah. you have that crackle when yeah. someone's on stage yeah. or on screen, like the early yeah. Emma Stone movies, where it's like, who the hell is she? Yeah. She's yeah. doing stuff. Yeah. And Bullock is there, and she's great. And her scenes with, with Kiefer Sutherland are solid. Yeah. And then she's gone, and Johanna Terstig has a different absence in the vanishing, in the original vanishing, because she is much more present in the scenes that there's more time spent with them. Well, that's she has what, that little monologue. You just you start to wonder who she is at the very beginning like in the car before everything goes wrong, and then Bullock is in and out in five or ten. She's just she doesn't last the same way, but she's so interesting. She's a good actress. That when she's gone, something else is missing from the movie. But this, then it, yeah, the sort of interrupt, but this, this, you just really sparked it. This, this comes now back to the, the segue to the remake was that the edit is yeah. different yep. in the remake, and it it begins with the bad guy and his life. That's right. And the whole point of the original, and you brought up the, the victim there, is that yeah. the whole point of the original is that you spend. Yeah, she persists. Th- yeah, there's a patience that they take. To you meet the couple, you get to know her. By the time she's gone, it's painful because you've fallen in love with her in your own way. You know what I mean? Like you get it. She's a a real person in the real world, and they have a real complex relationship because they're kind of fighting at the yeah yeah. yeah. But the time spent there is a very non Hollywood way to begin, right? Oh, yeah. Just 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 no. There's not going to be any kidnapping yet. There's, you're just going to have to be patient because mm-hmm. I don't think it's around. It's not till around the 18 minute mark yeah, that she's was, taken. Oh, I remember that first theatrical screening like at the Bloor thinking this isn't scary like this why is everything so normal yeah but it's a nice misdirect why are but people it, responding to but the time movie? spent there very European the time spent there is earned later because mm-hmm. so and it's there is a lesson in that because I do think that when I was re-watching the remake just to remember how bad it is <laughs> it's like, part of it is that it's a really flawed choice to begin to spend all this time with Jeff Bridges and so little time with them yeah. that I don't know. It's it, it doesn't help. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean maybe maybe in a in some strange self destructive way he is trying to demonstrate why it can't be remade, why you can't recapture it, <laughs> like unconsciously. Or I something? mean, I have to wonder. He's yeah. he's so clearly an intelligent filmmaker, oh, and like, his choices are in the original film and in the remake. There's some stuff there that could have worked or should have gone further. The, just the introduction of the Nancy Travis character in yeah. the American version shows you what a different movie could have been. Yeah. Like there, is, there is a different route for this narrative and there's another direction it could have taken. And then, of course, it does take that and it's massively unsatisfying. Do we know, is there anything out there that you might know of that he, was it taken away from him? I'm 
going to assume based on where it was dumped in the like I think it opened in February or March. It's one of those movies that just got thrown out there. Well, they knew it sucked, I'm sure by then. But it, was it taken to like did they re I just it felt like there was some tampering that last scene oh, that's got to be a well, the ending the scene is, where they just turned down the coffee with an awkward smile. Do you think so? That screams pick up to me. It know? was horrible. Cuz it is and it's basically just that a thumb in the eye of the original film. It just makes no sense. But yeah. I don't and I, it also echoes the last shot of um, of misery. Yes, which you come totally. out between the two versions, which seems too obvious for Sluzier to do it, but a studio hack who's just doing a day's reshoots. Right, maybe. Think that's I, I, I'm gonna like. I'm going to make it my mission. There is not much out there. there if you free. don't know, I'm assuming I'm not going to, but I'm going to try hard because I'm so curious about it all. Because I, I like I said, it's kind of tragic. The ending. I mean, I don't. But they must have known they were doing the happy ending before. It, it was obviously a decision. Well, the, the, the saving Sutherland character, yeah, I think so. But that yeah. little tag at the very But the tag at the end, the denouement, the, yeah. the coffee, yeah. Everything's not just great. It's fantastic. Oh, it was a joke, too, yeah. right? Yeah. It was not a stupid joke. We were kind of, a few of us, and I remember, I think Ebert might have even mentioned this in his review, a few of us at the very end were sort of waiting for the rug to be pulled out and for us to Yeah, there'd be another the trip. Yeah, right. Which would be fine, Yeah, right? And that's the sort of thing that's happening on the regular now with the Insidious movies and the song. Yeah. I think there's one last trick. But, uh, no, that was one of those moments where knowledge of the material actually works against the enjoyment of the remake because everything is going wrong. Like, everything, everything is going everything. wrong. Everything. And it's not Sutherland's fault. It's, it's nobody's not, fault. Yeah. It's, it's maybe Bridges. But just well, because he chose to do that. He did choose, but again, the director's job is to say, bad choice, let's not yeah, do yeah. that, right? Like, let's undo that. Yeah. I, I, I take much more comfort in the notion, coming back to what I said, it makes me feel better to think that Sozier said, you're going to pay me how much to come to Hollywood because I'm almost 60 mm-hmm. and I'm going to basically, like, it makes, it ta- it, that that's more comforting than the thought that it just fell apart and that, in fact, did he not really know what he was doing at the yeah. original? Did yeah, he just yeah. get lucky? Because I don't believe that because when no, I watch the no, original, I think a- this is a masterpiece directed by a masterful director, and it's not luck. No, it's not happenstance. It, it's film. not happenstance. It Everything about does. even even her casting. So coming back to Kubrick, mm-hmm. he yeah. was had her pegged for his movie Aryan Papers. And right. She was going to. Well, it was because because like of vanishing, and he saw her yeah, performance. That's and he, actually what he. That's from the that. Oh, is it the same interview? Oh, thing. Yeah, yeah, he talks about it. And yeah, he's, he's flattered. Yeah, but but also not quite fully believing it. That's how he, he explained. He relates Susie the story. Yeah. yeah. And he said, it's going to be this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's because she's great and you did that. But the reverse then is that if it is all luck, if it all falls together so perfectly, I don't know. No, I don't believe it. I, I think, yeah, he knew, what he, he knew exactly there are what he was doing. There too many choices. Tone, he gets the look, he gets the character. There's too many choices in the film that I've seen enough times to go, that is a choice that he made, uh, a decision. And it was the right decision, and yeah. it was a masterful stroke. And I, and I, uh, I don't know Hollywood. Look, uh, Hollywood has that famous thing of doing that to European filmmakers. Um, oh, and in and the nineties, like and the nineties was the heyday of doing that. Yeah, right? and it's just amazing that that Miramax didn't get him first. Exactly, just they beat him up. up everybody. <laughs> yeah, they would just beat him up. You know, and I, I, I feel like though part of it is that they there is a fish out of water element. Spielberg is a born and raised in the system um, even contemporary auteurs that have done well like a P.T. Anderson mm-hmm. he is L.A. he's yeah. born and yeah. raised in L.A. right he knows it as well as he knows anything in his bones and I do think that a truly European 
mentality coming over, I don't know, even Michael Haneke's remake, mm-hmm. right? Funny yeah. Games. It doesn't land. No, and it's it's one of those weird things where it feels it feels even more foreign and wrong because it's got Roth and Watts, neither of whom is American, and like the, literally the only change they made is that the dog is different. It's, right, a, it's right. a retriever instead of a shepherd. And I think once you put, well, with Funny Games, once you put that movie in an American context, it's actually not as interesting because... No, it's not, because there's no metaphor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It just stops working. Yeah, coming back to that World War Two thing, there's no, the banality of evil connected to the fact that they have their horrible past, you know, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It also doesn't work to place the vanishing in an American context simply because uh, America is, yeah, it's a predator's paradise. Like it's a it's a huge country, and serial killers are part of the fabric. I mean, even in 1993, it was a thing. Yeah, and having um, having it happen in, in you know in the bucolic countryside of England of, of England, the bucolic European countryside is way more disturbing. I mean, now it, we see those as well, those movies, but. They were in 1988, it was really yeah, yeah. quite jarring. Yeah. yeah. You're right. American stuff was probably more urban, too, wasn't it? Like uh, for serial killer stuff, I'm thinking? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is, in the end. It's a good density of population. But uh, stuff like... I mean, even Psycho is a kind of location-based serial killing. That's thing. true. It sort of sets up the same idea. That's come, the fear of being out in the woods. Yeah, the come here and you're going to die. Yeah. And um, the vanishing is come with me and you're going to die. In the original version, it's deeply disturbing and in the second one it's what uh, it's what John Harkness said about the comfort of strangers anybody who goes down a dark street in Venice with Christopher Walken deserves exactly what they get <laughs> exactly and Bridges is just he's radiating weirdness totally so there's no oh I have the answers if you just accompany me you'll get them totally that that line delivered by him you just want to run screaming or just hit him with a shovel well and everyone seems stupid for following him yeah fine whereas yeah. in in, in Obviously, in the original, it, it, there is, you feel for why he's doing it. You've kind of lived with him too long enough that you understand that it is an obsession. Mm-hmm. And obsession is not rational. Yeah, and it's something that he's trying to share with people. Which yeah. Which is the more un- unsettling thing is that he's trying to... I, I, that's what fascinates me about both versions, because we never see the initial abduction. And I, I'd love to know how it happened. Yeah. I think we are to presume that he chloroformed her. Yeah, I think I, you see, I always. This is a great question because I always because we see I, the experiment. Yeah, because we see him do it every other way. We see how he got it, so we almost don't need to because yeah. you're like, well, he probably just it just worked mm-hmm. exactly as he planned. But I want to see maybe not so much with Bridges because it's ridiculous, and that's the other thing that the inherent impossibility of Sandra Bullock going with him to whatever it is if he was trying to just sort of coax her that doesn't make sense either. Yeah, but there's that, and then there's also the element of seduction that must have been involved with Tersteeg in the original version, and that's something that I kind of want to see because that she's established as such a strong character. What do you mean by seduction? Though, do you mean that she was flirty? When no, no, on on Donaghy's part, okay, on yeah, his part, yeah, because yeah. when he his entire pitch throughout the entire film in the original version is that I will tell you if you listen. Yeah. Come closer. Yeah. And that's it, that other thing. Like, do you think... What is it? Do you, do you think if I really wanted to hurt you, I'd be standing here in the darkest part of the forest? Yeah, that's right. Like just that weird... Everything about this guy looks placid and welcoming and, and inviting and and warm, except that it's all wrong and you can feel it. And, and Bridges' choice to externalize that just means that Sandra Bullock would have hit him in the face with whatever she had nearby and run away and there'd be no movie. 
It doesn't make sense that this guy could operate the way he he supposedly does. But in the original, it makes sense that he could just exist and wander around and take people. Yeah, and he and he is also like he's so not weird the way mm-hmm. that Bridges is. And there's that scene where he uh, when they were at the parking lot before he decides to drink the coffee, and he lashes out on him and starts beating him up at the car. Yeah, right? he's just kicking him. He's just rages, and so he would, so anybody would. But the way that the character just takes it and doesn't, he's, he's just like, that's not going to, you can beat me up for another 20 minutes if you like. I'm never going to hit you back. Yeah. I'm not menacing that way. It's your choice. It's not his thing. It's not yeah. my thing. You either do or you don't want to know what happened. I really don't care. And you've got nothing on me, by the way. All those details you have, I won't go to jail. So it's really your choice. If you require it, then I will offer that to you. But, mm. but I don't need it. Like he's, he's totally ready to go home. Yeah, and it also, it bolsters his existence in that film, in that world. It, that's why you don't get the police involved. That's why no one... It makes sense in a way that Bridges doesn't. Bridges is the weirdo at the end of the bar that gets arrested every other night. The haircut alone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And just the insistence on the thing he does with his shoulders when he walks, he rolls. It's like... I know. It's like he's tried so hard his entire life to be arrested and taken away that this is his... This is his last resort, that he's just going to start killing people. You know, you had the chance to stop me, you never did. So, okay, know. great. Well, he's taking pleasure in it all. Yeah. That's the other thing. And, and way I, too much. And way too much. As an actor as well as a totally. Um, I Like, that to me is one of, the, one of the nastiest turns in the story of the original, is that our man has actually given up. By the time she comes in and he sees her at the coffee shop, at the coffee machine, mm-hmm. he's blown it. Right, he was ready to go home. Yeah, he laughed it off. Do you remember that part? Because he yeah. literally laughed it off. He blew it again, and you can see he's just thinking, "Oh, well, who was I kidding? Honestly, yeah, this was a stupid thought experiment that I've taken too far because I'm a bit of a perfectionist. But what a joke! Come right. on, you blew it. Let's have a cup of coffee, and you're going to go home, and you're going to get on with your bullshit life. This isn't you, and just the way fate works out that then she comes and approaches him and. That to me is also core to the character because he doesn't. Again, he's not. He can't believe his luck. I mean, it's just. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Yeah, and of course, it gives you that whole godless universe thing, which totally right? I mean, no one's. Which is undone by the remake as well. No one's coming to save anybody. That's exactly right. We are alone. That's you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. That that I should imagine also would have spoken very strongly to Kubrick. That, that, yeah, the, oh, that godless point. universe, and there's no rhyme or reason to these things, and good people don't, you know, get good things happen, and yeah. bad people don't have to suffer. It's just because there is a randomness to it all, and it's horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, but life is probably, I mean, I think for the most part like that. Yeah, I think you were on our own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and again, I keep coming back to it, but I really do believe that I think that any European, any intelligent European film that is dealing with suspense I really believe that was made you know through the 50s and 60s and 70s and into the 80s still there's still an echo of of this World War II lingering there and those were strange messages to deal with and they were strange I think ideas to to grow up with and they do speak to a certain godlessness or to a certain randomness and to a certain banality and I, I don't know why, but I've always felt that there's something there. It's a, I, I mean, I do, like coming back to Haneke, I do believe that almost all of his movies are basically... I mean, not Caché, because I think Caché is about the Algerian 
yeah, situation. That's a very specific, very specific French, to the Algerian thing going on there. Yeah, yeah, that's to do with the French colonialism in Algeria, and there was that massacre in, in was it 1967 in Paris. Uh, they drowned a bunch of. Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, so that was very specific to that, but I feel like all his other work is just this kind of lingering echo of that. And I and I the vanishing, I don't know why, but to me it very much fits into that European psychological torment, and mm. it's them still wrestling with all that stuff. Yeah. Weirdly enough, the one I was thinking of this time was La Ventura, which has a little Antonioni. Yeah, I mean, there's a literal vanishing in it, but it just feels like that kind of thing where your entire life is derailed by. Something that you had no control yeah. over. Well, yeah, and that's like the Holocaust. That's how exactly. we look at that. It's the like the arrival Holocaust. of the Nazis in the rest of Europe. Just yeah. whatever you plan to do, it's yeah. over. It's over now. Yeah. No, I think you you were bang on there, and I think another reference for that for me, I believe it was made the same year or maybe it was the year prior, is Frantic by Roman Polanski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, uh, and I think you're right. Yeah, it's either the same year or within six months. You know, it's like it's right in that pocket. Yeah. And the scene of... Because I just rewatched it recently and it's really good. It's definitely his nod to Hitchcock. It's mm-hmm. a Hitchcock through yeah, and that's through. that's like all I remember about it. It's pure it's Hitchcock, like right? shots and things like that. Yeah, and the roof sequence. and I, I mean, it's pure Hitchcock, but there is this existential trauma that happens when his wife is just missing. And it's like, well, where is she? And nobody has an answer. And nobody actually really cares. Mm-hmm. And they kind of care, but they only care in as much as... The guy in The Vanishing who's working at the gas station, he's the manager, he's saying, yes, fine. And when he's saying, well, let's go through all the pennies in the coffee machine, his fingerprints will be on there. And the guy's kind of looking at him just being like, you don't get it. That's not going to happen, right? Like, for all you know, she's having an affair on you. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. And in Frantic, that's exactly what happens. And I feel like there is a connective tissue there to to that World War II feeling where it's like, no, no. Uh, we understand that you're you have family who have now been taken. But what do you want me to do? Yeah, right. It happens like, to everybody. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just like there's nothing I can do about that. You're kind of on your own. It, there's a real echo to that. Um, Predict's really good. I never really considered the, the parallels. I mean, just the synchronicity of it. It's uh, yeah. Like I don't know who got there first. Each other. Well, Frantic I know was a spring release here. Was I it eighty eight though, Frantic, or was it eighty seven? I think it was eighty eight. Might be eighty seven, but right around there anyway. It's on a, I think it's on a double bill Blu-ray somewhere with Presumed Innocent from Warner. The Alan J. Pakula movie? Uh, yeah. With Harrison Ford? Yeah, it was the Harrison Ford link. Sandy Stern, that character Sandy Stern. Yeah, Roald Julia. Yeah, Roald Julia, that's right. One of the great Roald Julia. Oh, when Sandy Stern shows up, it just like, and he yeah. brings the brings the heat. Oh, no, I'll watch that again. Yeah, that's this a good This is movie. The, the beauty of having everything at my fingertips, and screw you, iTunes. <laughs> Physical media forever. Uh, but yeah, so this this basically does sort of we're starting to drift into influences and connections so that, I mean it sets it up perfectly uh, is there anything from The Vanishing that you have borrowed or, or stolen or absorbed into your own creative DNA? Um, I didn't really see a lot of it in Trench Eleven No When you suggested it I thought oh, okay Yeah, they're very different films Except for the European tension thing Yeah, like the European tension thing is something that I'm going to spend my whole career <laughs> trying to master okay. and, I, and I, if I get halfway there I'll be happy Um so yes, there's there that, but um, there is, but I didn't realize it okay. until I painfully scanned through the remake again in preparation of this conversation, and it did go into my psyche, and that's being trapped underground with a lighter and nothing else. Okay. And in fact, further to that, I realized when I saw Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. 
I mean, wake up in the dark. There is that. Took out a Zippo, and he's trapped. And the opening and ending of Trench 11, Ross of Settleland, is in the dark, underground, buried alive, mm-hmm. and he only has a match. Yeah. And I think that that may... I can... Look, that's an overt thing that I was unaware of. Right. So whether that's it or not, I don't know. But, yeah, no, they're very different films, but I... I um, Beyond that, I, yeah, I just I, I, I just aspire to, I don't know. I, I the vanishing two is just so smart. I, it's so refreshing that it's it's just really intelligent and it's shamelessly intelligent. It doesn't care. They don't. It doesn't. It doesn't really. It, it, there's so many tiny moments you can see that they're just getting out of the scene or getting into the scene or they're not telling you everything. But it's okay. You get it. You're following it. You're with it. The characters are smart too. They're always making choices. Um, that makes sense. I don't know. I find it really rare. I really do, especially in genre films, you know, especially in thrillers. Or mm-hmm. there's such a tendency to want to do exactly what they did in the remake, which is get it bigger, yeah. make it bigger, you know, jump it out, all that stuff. And I really admire, you know. Actually, there's a there is another influence there. I think that, you know, off off mic before you and I were just referencing and we were talking about Jack Tolkien's films. I I do think that there's something about the, calmness of suspense that I find very um, scary and mm-hmm. there's certain scenes like in Cat People where like that pool scene there's nothing happening it's just audio yeah um, and it's what you imagine to be around the character that you can't see certainly in Trench 11 I try to mind that as much as possible and, and The Vanishing is not directly like that but there is a kind of like there's there's you just know that there's so much else happening just around you that you're not seeing probably because you never see the kidnapping you never see her held hostage you yeah. don't see a lot of the stuff um, yeah, the emphasis a, is on the psyche of it it's like a placid frame almost yeah things totally really calm and totally yeah and awful things are lurking beyond the, the well now I think we, we experience that in horror films all the time now but it's in that weird trick that we're all used to where the sound drops out just before the scare yeah and everybody has developed an immunity to that. Like, yeah. You sort of brace yourself for it. When you when you hear the soundtrack go away, it's just like, oh, something's coming. It's going to happen. Yeah, is it yeah. a cat or is it actually the killer? That's the only question. Yeah. But when a whole movie is that calm, there's no release, and your brain just starts to turn it on itself. I'm dying to make a film, and I will one day, where there's a lot less score. Because that's the other thing I notice with those Euro films. Mm-hmm. Like The Vanishing, there's only score when there needs to be score. Yeah. Um, you know, like Rafifi. It's like the whole heist. There's no score. And um, that really, I noticed that, whereas, whereas conversely, the remake, it's Jerry Goldsmith who made countless sure, brilliant sure. scores. Like, you know, even like, I think Planet of the Apes, is, he did that. Right? Yeah, it's like one of my favorite. Yeah. Like, it's so cool. So the guy did incredible work. But when you hear it in, in the remake, you're like, it's so hokey. It's wall-to-wall scary time. It's all... Now we're all going to get scared. And in the original, there's so much less score. So much less. Oh, no. Less is almost always more. I mean, this is a perfect example of that. The, the, the fact that there are things we don't see, there are connections that we are forced to make because there's no exposition. Yeah. That's... Yeah. That's how you get into people's heads and freak them out. I even actually watched Sully last night. <laughs> I don't know if you saw it. I have seen Yeah. I don't know if you're a fan of it or not. But I thought some of the most effective elements in that film was when the, the, the plain stuff was happening and there was no score. Yeah. Right? There was no score. It helps you get into the moment. 
Yeah, and especially since that, well, with Sully, Sully is a, a fascinating experiment in finding a feature film in 48 seconds of heroism. Right? <laughs> like the idea that, that you have to build in flashbacks and flash forwards yeah. and, and, and follow him around New York and all of that stuff, which is interesting because I, I found, I don't think the film works throughout no probably not but watching Tom Hanks struggle with everyone loving him is really interesting to me yeah, yeah. He, that's a great choice for that actor yeah um, and Jake Gyllenhaal does it in Stronger too the ambivalent uh, response to the, about the Boston Marathon survivor oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's who somebody, directed that um, it's not Peter Berg is it David Gordon Green I think he did yeah oh, wow. yes it is in fact it is because there's a somebody in this in this middle class working class Boston family uh, has a copy of uh, Snow Angels on their DVD rack. Are you kidding? Like, no, they don't. Come on. He's kind of like the new Soderbergh to me. He he's quite um, really has no genre. He right? seems to be able, willing to do anything. He goes he's all got over the Halloween place. coming to Tiff next month. He's got Halloween comedies with uh, um, on HBO. What's his name? Uh, oh, Danny McBride. Danny McBride who, who like, co-wrote Halloween. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and apparently is not a comedy because you you know I was going on a recent Malick binge again and uh, I just had to return to. Uh, and I was rewatching uh, like Badlands, and um, and he EP'd David Gordon Green's first movie, right? Undertow. That's yes, yeah. that's right. And oh, not wait, Undertow. No, no, no. Sorry, one. that's his second movie. Was his the George third, Washington right? one. Yeah, George it? Washington. Yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe it was his third, but mm-hmm. it was it's sort of then big. It was all the real girls, all the real girls, which, which yeah. I love, and has disappeared from the world. Apparently, it kind of has. Yeah. You would have thought though, by the time Undertow was going, and Malik is EPing it. That and based on his two previous films, that was going to be oh his, his thing, yeah, 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 right. And that was just quite fascinating, yeah, like Halloween, but then stronger, like where does that fit in? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, he's an interesting guy. And and, and what was that? What was that called though? The HBO show with Daniel McBride. Oh, Eastbound and Down. Eastbound and Down. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, I mean, he's a, he's yeah, he's just going with. I mean, I assume he's going where the work is, but also he's able to do all the work, so he gets more of this stuff. Um, as opposed to, yeah, Malik, who can only function. Yeah, Malik can own, only, right? and even then, almost not always. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> like right. quite rarely can he. But when I don't know, I, I the other thing I revisited was uh, Thin Red Line because mm-hmm. I remember when that came out the same summer, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, and I saw it second. And yeah, no, it was the fall. It was the it Christmas was, release. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Ryan was in the summer. They actually shifted them around at one point. They opened. I think Fox get them was, away from each other. Yeah, Fox yeah. was planning to open the Thin Red Line in the summer, but it didn't work out. Or they backed it off. Maybe, or it wasn't finished. I mean, it's certainly possible he was still coming. More than likely not finished. Yeah. And I remember at the time it didn't. It couldn't live up because the mm. D-Day invasion well, so, and Private Ryan was just so radical. Uh, but uh, I rewatched it and I was kind of quite floored. I was like, "This is this is Malik going full Malik, and it totally works. Yeah. And nobody else could make a movie quite like this." I've been meaning to revisit it. I do have the Blu-ray over there. Do you? Yeah, yeah. It's, I have it, all the Blu-rays. It's, but. it's worth it. It really. I, I I was surprised how well it stood up. Well, that's good. And I'm just trying to think of a way out in terms of the vanishing to get it back, but Malik is so far removed. I mean, <laughs> no. I mean, I'd love to see his treatment of a like he's never made a thriller really. Like Badlands no. is sort of Badlands like a, is Badlands I mean, is a crime thriller. It has thriller elements, yeah. but the pacing is like completely different. I'd love to what? like a film that meditates in the in the prelude the way the vanishing does. But that's sort of they are in a, not to BS here there is the connection in that the emphasis is on psychology yeah. it is on the emphasis is not on the rhetoric of the film it's not on the formal rhetoric either yeah it's the attraction it's, of yeah it's the psychological state of the characters and by extension 
an overall state of being that the movie starts to encompass. Because mm-hmm. Badlands does very much take that on. They're sociopathic. Yeah, yeah right? we're in their heads by. Like, yeah, like one through. Yeah, by halfway through, you are literally, you are inside Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen's heads, and they are sociopathic. They're totally sociopathic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just done with kind of maybe more poetry and um, you know a different different approach, but it it is the emphasis on psychology over anything else, and um, that's certainly to me why The Vanishing is special because it. it it's just so easy to make that movie in, in such a different kind of a way. And look, Hitchcock made that movie a couple times, or a version of that movie a couple times, where it was way less psychological, mm-hmm. and it's still great. And I'm not saying one's better than the other, but... Yeah. Um, They're all asking the same question, right? They're all making the same invitation. Come walk with me and let's see what happens. Yeah, and there's a kind of existential dread. I, I, that's, what, that's what always upsets me. Is I feel like there's an existential pain... Um, his his nightmare of not being able to find her to me and it's unanswerable and nobody really cares that's life mm. you basically are on your own yeah you know what I mean like you are and it's very painful that uh, that's painful to know it right that's what this movie's about that's what the vanishing ends on it's the oh no here's your answer because he could have she's a wonderful his new girlfriend is a wonderful person who adores him mm-hmm and she, doesn't she say something like, "Let's just"? I think she says something like, yeah, "Let's move to let's like stop it and leave." Yeah, yeah, basically. move to uh, yeah, like basically move you know somewhere else and just go have a life. I think she like references the Caribbean or something like that. But yeah, he can't, he can't. Yeah. And he gets his answer, and yeah, yeah. So do we, and then the lights come up. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'm very envious. I have to say that that. Uh, to have seen it when it was fresh, because to see it now, if it came out next year and I went to the light box. I would think 95% of the audience would have already seen it. Yeah. Right? It's... And we'd all be there to see a restored film print and, and the pleasure of seeing it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, have a glass of wine. It's a very whole... different experience when you don't know what's Yeah, going. like for you to... Have, I'm so envious to have seen <laughs> it then. And the Bloor is like a proper theater. People must have been just rocked. Yeah, there was a lot of silence. And then there were other people immediately going, and you knew? And you were like, you brought me to this? <laughs> That's always fun when you get to see people turn on each other. What were the other big twist endings back then? There really weren't a lot, right? There Obviously, two... Psycho way before that, but yeah. like, what are the other big twists? Like, they weren't as they weren't in vogue, right? No, no. This was a good six or seven years before the Usual Suspects even. So, right. You know, like, it just wasn't part of the language, part of the general expectation. That's right. The Usual Suspects and the Sixth Sense were the two ones that I remember mm-hmm. re kind of booting this whole. Yeah, that's. I mean, those are the ones that there must be something I'm not thinking of, but. In yeah, in terms of the 70s, of, things were pretty linear. Like, movies played fair. <laughs> yes, was, right. And this was that was part of the disturbance too. In this is that there is that it is playing fair with you. It's just that you don't see it coming. That's right. And neither do they. And that's, that's right. like again, ugh, it works insidiously well. Yeah. My thanks to Leo Sherman, whose first feature, Trench Eleven, is in theaters across Canada right now and available on iTunes in the U.S. and Canada today. Thanks also to Macy Armstrong and Ingrid Hamilton. They know what they did. You can find Leo on Twitter at Leo Sherman, all one word, and you can find The Vanishing on Blu-ray and DVD in a fine special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also available on iTunes and on Filmstruck and Amazon in the U.S. The remake is around, but... Ugh. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. 
Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. Oh, and next week's episode drops on Monday instead of Tuesday, so you'll want to be ready for that. It's kind of special.